Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome back to this week's episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee. I'm your host, Amanda Nally. Recently, Dr. Toby Amison was welcomed as the new Assistant Commissioner of the Tennessee Department of Health Division of Family Health and Wellness. This episode, Dr. Anna Murad, the TIPQC Infant Medical Director, sat down with Dr. Amison to talk about her new role and the hopes and dreams she has for family health and wellness in Tennessee. Let's listen in. Hi, everybody. I'm Anna Murad, the Infant Medical Director for TIPQC, and we have with us today Dr. Toby Amison. First of all, congratulations on your new position. Can you give us your exact title? Thank you for having me. My exact title is the Assistant Commissioner of Health for Tennessee, and I'm the Director of Division of Family Health and Wellness. It's a pretty big division. I think I didn't realize how big it was going to be until I got the job. It's an annual budget of about $300 million in charge of services impacting about three to four million people across the state of Tennessee. We touch all 95 counties in Tennessee. We have approximately 140 people-ish, depending on the week, (laughs) who work in the division, and we have about 30 programs. It's a big job. Yeah, it is. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up at the health department. Sure. I was born in Nigeria. We lived mostly in Athens, Georgia, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania when I was growing up. I ended up in Nashville, and this is sort of circuitous, but I went to Vanderbilt for undergrad went back to Pittsburgh for med school residency and worked there for a couple of years. Moved back to Nashville about 12 years ago, and I've been in private practice in Nashville off and on for the past 12 years. I've actually known Dr. McDonald since we were teenagers. We were friends back in undergrad, which is kind of fun. And she's been trying to get me to work for the Department of Health off and on for the past three or four years, and I kept turning her down. She caught me in a weak moment last year. It was sort of a transitional phase in my career. We were in terms of what I was wanting in terms of my career. My kids are getting bigger, wanting something a little bit more challenging, and I definitely got it. Well, and I think you've always had a heart for public service and public health, and so it it does seem to make sense for this position to be an, an extension of your private practice. Sure. Working as most recently as a medical director for Academy Children's Clinic in Nashville. It's a very large Spanish-speaking, primarily clinic. We serve probably about 90% Medicaid, about 5% uninsured, and 5% private pay patients. We grew the clinic from about 2,000 patients to about 15 or 16,000 patients, I believe, right now in about six years. So that kind of growth over such a short period of time I learned a lot about administration, how to deal with human resources. I learned how to deal with a lot of quality improvement initiatives. Can you tell us a little bit about the responsibilities that fall under your purview? I have six major areas. And as anybody who's in medicine knows, you have to use acronyms to remember how anything 
is structured because that's the only way I remember how to do anything. And unfortunately, the only thing that works for me is the word crimes. But I'm going to qualify that and say it's a crime not to consider family health and wellness to be important to the state of Tennessee. So C-R-I-M-E-S. So C would be for chronic health prevention and disease promotion. Our big three areas are targeting obesity, diabetes, and tobacco use. We work really closely with the Office of Primary Prevention to create built environments. And that means things like playgrounds, greenways, that kind of thing, and facilitating healthy lifestyles. R is for reproductive and women's health. And that encompasses a lot of things and everything from sexual risk avoidance education to family planning to Title X grant funding, 10 care registration for presumptive people who are eligible for 10 care. Another thing that we are very involved in is breast and cervical cancer screenings as well. So that's the big part of the R. Under I is injury prevention. And as a pediatrician, this is always really important to me. Uh, Suicide prevention, safe sleep initiatives, traumatic brain injury, other things that not the not so fun part of my job is child fatality review, maternal mortality review, and figuring out things that we can mitigate and how do we can reduce those. The M is for maternal and child health director. And that is really the bulk of what it's the umbrella over everything else, the M, which we'll get to. Maternal Child Health Director is a person who oversees the MCH grant from the federal government. We're involved with everything from, and this is the stuff that I think most people would be familiar with, neonatal abstinence, surveillance, lead screening, newborn screening, hearing screening, the congenital um, heart disease screens that we do for babies in the newborn nursery. And then we're also really involved with children and youth with special health care needs and then other services to children with a special health care needs. E is for early childhood initiatives, which is mostly focusing right now on ACEs reduction and home visiting. And then S is supplemental nutrition, which most people are familiar with. WIC, the supplemental food program, farmers markets for seniors, and then breastfeeding initiatives. So that's it. <laughs> Yeah, it is. Wow. I know. I had no idea. When I finally got on board, I had no idea what I was getting into, but that's okay. (laughs) Okay. I'm sure you'll do it all very, very well. Can you you. tell us a little bit about the maternal child health funding and how how the funding actually occurs? So this was actually probably coming from someone who's been in the private sector all their career. This is probably the most confusing part of my job is understanding all the acronyms, understanding where all the money is coming from who's in charge of what. I had to basically go back to social studies class and I start with the branches of the government. So you have legislative, judicial, and you have executive. So when you start with the executive branch, you have the president, underneath the president is the cabinet, which is, and then you have the different cabinet sections. So the Department of Health and Human Services, under Health and Human Services are lots of agencies a lot of people are familiar with, like FDA, CDC, NIH. And one of those agencies is HRSA, which is the Health Resources and Services Administration. HRSA is the agency that distributes what we call the Title V block grant. Title V is also known as the Maternal Child Health Block Grant. So that's where if you, people will use those two terms interchangeably. And one of the things, and people will hear this, I, what I actually did not know about going into this is you hear about title, whatever it is. I didn't realize that there are different sections of title law in the United States. So some of them are under the Social Security Administration, like Title V. 
Some of them are under the Civil Rights Act, like Title IX for women. So you hear about women, equality for women in athletics, that kind of thing. And then some of them are under the Health Services Act, which is another division that I'm involved in, which is Title X family planning. So Title V, if you hear that, it's called the MCH Block Grant. That's all you need to know. And that honestly is what our listeners are going to be most interested in, because that's what we do at the Perinatal Collaborative. So can you talk a little bit about what your priorities are in maternal child health arena and then how those priorities are set? A little bit about the stakeholder group. And the follow up to that is how are those priorities identified? So the departmental goals are fivefold, and these are goals between not just within my division, but across the department. The first one is to decrease tobacco use. Number two is to decrease youth obesity. Number three is to prevent and mitigate adverse childhood experiences. Number four is to promote health equity, and that's one of the newer goals. And then number five is to promote telehealth, which is also a new goal, which is interesting, especially in light of 2020 and 2021. This is interesting because it's common across a lot of states, but we have to look at what's specific for Tennessee, right? So if you consider that 38% of kids in Tennessee are either overweight or obese, two and three adults in Tennessee are either overweight or obese, obviously that's going to be one of our biggest target areas. 13%, which I was staggered when I learned that number, 13% of adults in Tennessee are have diabetes, which means one in 10 Tennesseans has diabetes. So that's obviously going to also be a big priority for us. And then with regard to health equity, we have noticed, and I've noticed during my short time on the job already, that there's a lot of disparity between counties. Certain parts of the state have certain special health care needs, but in having that, you're seeing a lot of disparity, especially between non-Hispanic Black women, white women, Hispanic families, and everyone in between. So when we see those disparities, that's where we find, that's where we're targeting our priorities. And are those the same priorities for the block grant? They are the okay. same, they're the same priorities, yes. When you're talking about parties for maternal child health, what do you see as your biggest barriers for implementation? Sure. And especially in the past year, COVID, I mean, everybody's talking about COVID. COVID's been a huge barrier, not only from the fact that we have a lot of our staff being pulled away from their regular duties to help with initially COVID testing, but now with COVID vaccination. That's one thing. Number two, there's a lot of COVID fatigue. So there's staff turnover that happens. There are people who just are, not that they're just making their way through their job, but I think a lot of people are just tired and it's hard to keep the energy up all the time. There's been a lot of turnover in the public health sector. And then the other thing is that COVID is also worsening us disparities a lot. And I'm sure a lot of people have noticed this, that things that were already problematic before COVID have become even more problematic during COVID. So that's probably the biggest barrier that I can see. We mean, and you, with that, you have finite resources with almost infinite need. So that's, it's hard to manage those two things. The one good thing I would say is that this COVID has forced us to be a little more creative in ways we wouldn't have normally have been, especially with telework and telehealth. Those are two areas where I've seen improvement. So that even though there have been barriers created by COVID, there have also been opportunities that have been created by it as well. One other thing that is a barrier is the infrastructure still needs to be updated because unfortunately everybody has lots of ideas, but you still have to have the platform to make those ideas happen. So anything from EHR or better PowerPoint or better, and there are all these different applications that the epidemiologists use. 
all of that stuff still needs to be taught and learned. And that's probably another barrier that we see, but it, I mean, it comes quickly and slowly. I cannot say how proud I am of the epidemiologists in our department because they are rock stars. They are absolutely amazing at getting all this information and making it easy for somebody like me to understand because I'm not a data person. They make it into pretty pictures and pretty maps. And I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense to me now. So that's been encouraging for me. I think it's really helpful to have data. That's how you make decisions, yeah, right? You've got to have the data. Can you talk a little about your department's efforts to address the health disparities that you mentioned earlier? So one of the things that they've started in the Department of Health in the past few years has been the Office of Minority Health and Health Disparities Elimination. So that's headed up by Dr. Kimberly Lamar. They do a bunch of different things to help with that. The things that I'm directly involved in would be the Health Disparities Task Force, that meets once a week, Thursday afternoons. If anyone's interested, just go to the website and you can get signed up. So we do health disparities task force focusing on things like obesity, mental health, diabetes. And then once a month, we all get together and meet with not just people within the department, but stakeholders from all across the state. So I'm seeing people from Memphis, Knoxville, a lot of the other rural counties that I don't have an opportunity to travel to right now. And the nice thing about that is that office is being really proactive in changing the language that's happening in the health department. There are a lot of things that I, just from what I've noticed, language that would be used in maybe media that's going out, that people are taking a second look at things again to make sure, okay, does this look representative of the people we're sending this to? Is it in the right language? Are the pronouns correct? Are the people who are actually being pictured in the pictures, do they look like the people who we're trying to target. Yeah, so I think those are the kinds of things that I've noticed that I've been really impressed with, that they've been trying to make a really conscious effort. It's interesting how, and I say this all the time to my kids, representation matters, and it makes people realize, oh, that little girl looks like me. If I put up a poster and it looks like a little girl whose family is Hispanic, that little girl will see that. And it, you don't think about that, but that kind of, those kind of images matter, that having something in your own language matters to people and making sure we're using language and media that's inclusive and representative of all Tennesseans. I think that's incredibly important. Tell us a little bit more about the other programs that our listeners may not be quite so familiar with, the nutrition program or the daycare incentives. Sure. Sure. One of the ones that I think is really fun is the Gold Sneaker Initiative, which I'd never even heard of until I started working here. Gold Sneaker Initiative is for daycares across the state of Tennessee. They have, I believe, seven different metrics that they measure, varying from nutrition and physical activity and trying to make sure that people are not using recess or playtime as a non-punitive measure, because I'm sure you hear about people taking away recess because someone misbehaves where in reality, very often, that's what the kids need the most is to go outside and burn off the energy and then making sure it's a tobacco-free environment. So I like the Gold Sneaker Initiative a lot. Another one that we work with closely that we're figuring out funding right now is the seniors, farmers markets. Those are usually done in the towards the end of the summer and early fall. And we provide those to several counties across the state of Tennessee. One other thing that we're really excited about is the WIC Shopper app, which is going to be coming out for families. It's very interactive and we're, I get to test it. I'm really excited, weirdly excited about testing this out. I get to go to the grocery store and scan things with the app and we can, and it comes, it has recipes, it has 
ways to know if this is a good choice for your family. It tells you how much money you have left on your card. It's great. So those are the three things that I'm really excited about. That's amazing. So when is that app coming out? We're, they're working on it right now this month. We're hoping by the end of the month, if not by the end of March, April. And it links to healthy recipes for the entire yes. family. That's yeah, within amazing. the app. And the thing that's cool is other states have already been doing this. So there is already a platform there. We're just tailoring it to Tennessee. I think that's fantastic. So what about programs that include fathers or grandparents or partners? What are some of the other things that that your group does to address the health of those folks? We talk so much about maternal child mm-hmm. health at QC, but what are some of the other wellness efforts from your division? Sure. Something as simple, and everybody knows about the breastfeeding hotline, that's easy to know, but that's so focused on the mom and the child. I do encourage dads to call the breastfeeding hotline too, because it actually gives them ways to support the mom. I encourage grandparents to call it because if they have questions about how do you store the breast milk, we spilled it, what do we do? (laughs) That kind of thing. It helps parents and it helps all the people who are around the mom supporting her. Other things we do offer, obviously the tobacco quit line. A lot of people know about that. 1-800-QUIT now. It's helpful for not just regular traditional cigarette smoking, but also vaping as well, which we're seeing a lot more in younger people. Two or three other programs we work with. There's one called Coaching Boys into Men, which works with decreasing intimate partner violence. And that sort of goes throughout the stage from the time they're tweens all the way up to through adulthood. And it's like a multi-generational way of decreasing ACEs for those children and breaking the cycle of violence. One other thing is the Battle of the Belt for teen drivers and seatbelt use. It's a sort of like a friendly online competition between high schools and you can sign up your high school for it. And they do various checkpoints during the year to see when you pull into your parking lot of your high school to see who's using their seatbelt properly, that kind of thing. And then another one that I like is the Safe Stars Youth Athletic Program. They are way similar to the gold sneakers. It's sort of a way to get your youth athletic program certified. So they look at things like have the coaches had background checks. They look at are, are people CPR certified? Is there an AED available? Do you have do you have a medical clearance for all the children who are participating in the sport? And you can get a bronze, silver, or gold certification for your youth league. Yeah, that program actually provided some AEDs for certain teams, I think, at one point, which is incredible. I think that's such a great thing to do for our youth. Talk a little bit about your work around ACEs, identification and reduction. Sure. For those who don't know what ACEs are, ACEs are considered to be adverse childhood experiences. They're any kind of stressful or traumatic experience that disrupt the safe, nurturing environments that children need to thrive. It's a questionnaire that has 10 questions on it, dealing with things like intimate partner violence. Have you ever seen anybody in your family held up at gunpoint or knife point? Has anyone in your family ever been in jail? Was any, anyone in your family alcohol or drug dependent? Were your parents ever divorced? That they Ask questions like that about hard things that kids go through. And the reason that we ask those questions is because the higher your number of ACEs are, the increased risk for on both ends, not just physical health, but also mental health. So increased likelihood of suicide attempt, increased risk of alcohol and drug use, increased risk of um, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, cancer. I mean, it's really terrifying to think how much stuff that happens to kids often in their childhood can affect their adult health. And so one of the things I keep 
thing, I, one of the things that's been resonating in my head over the past couple of weeks is primary prevention begins in pediatrics. It really does, and not even pediatrics in the perinatal period, primary prevention really begins then. So the things that we are really trying to work on, the biggest thing is probably the evidence-based home visits. That's a big program. It's already in all 95 counties. Obviously, it's been a little limited in the past year because of COVID, but we're trying to get more home visiting, more resources into families to sort of head off. So you may have one ACE at the beginning. Maybe you have parents who are divorced at the beginning, but maybe we can decrease mom's risk of substance use. We can decrease mom's risk of intimate partner violence by having someone who's already checking in with her, who's being a resource for her from the very beginning, because we also know that, especially in the past year, one of the things we've been dealing with COVID is the isolation. It has exacerbated so many problems for people. Yeah, that certainly has been a common theme with our work with the hospitals. What sure. are some other things that you've noticed with COVID's impact for moms and babies? Oh, wow. Uh, how much time do we have? Um, anecdotally, some of this is research-based. Some of this is just my experience as a pediatrician, and I've, I'm still seeing patients a half day a week. Um, anecdotally, I know that the anxiety level and depression level has gone through the roof in 2020. We've seen a lot more postpartum depression in our clinic in particular. The isolation from family members, the isolation during a time that, especially during pregnancy, which is usually a time when people are gathering around you, like this past year, people were so afraid of being around people, especially for pregnant women having high risk, that isolation, it's an unnatural amount of isolation during a time that normally is a big time of celebration for people. And so that in having that isolation postpartum, all the people who might be coming over to bring you meals or help with the baby aren't coming into your house anymore. So increasing anxiety, increased amount of intimate partner violence, definitely during COVID. We've seen a lot more kids brought into the emergency room, a lot more moms being targets of intimate partner violence during this past year. One of the things, and I'm sure you're seeing this too, people aren't coming to the doctor as much. <laughs> so volume has gone down basically across the country for both not just pediatricians, but gynecologists, internal medicine, because people don't want to take the risk of catching something in the waiting room. So people are seeking less care. And because of that, we've seen a decline in vaccination rates over the past year, although it's starting to improve, but we've seen a decline in vaccination rates. Another thing that we've seen from COVID is, unfortunately, as we all know, women tend to bear the brunt of all healthcare decisions for families. And also, women tend to bear the lion's share of the work in the home most of the time. So a lot of women have left the workforce because if you have two or three kids at home doing virtual school, if you got laid off from work, that plus the fact if you if you have if you're pregnant or whatever the case may be, we've seen a significant decrease in women in the workforce. I want to say the numbers I was seeing was about two thirds or three quarters of the people who left the workforce were women. And then the other thing is just even if you're not depressed, even if you're not super anxious, people are just really stretched thin. Everyone's just really stretched really thin between work, remote learning, big kids, little kids, home life. And so it's been a hard, it's been a hard year. It's been a hard year for everybody. I think with the vaccine, we sort of are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, but it's going to be interesting coming out of this to, to, to see all the data that comes out of this. I keep telling people that 2020 is going to be a data goldmine. It's going to be interesting analyzing what all the different effects. Oh, another thing, and this isn't necessarily for babies, but a significant increase in obesity this past year. 
And so not just in, if obviously the babies, it hasn't affected them as much, but the moms who haven't been going out and being as active and then their kids as well. So, and of course, as we know, obese kids turn very often become obese adults and obese adults become obese moms. So we're, it's going to be interesting trying to mitigate all of the things that have happened this past year. For sure. And I think one of the most important messages of what you just said is you got to get back into the doctor's office. Yeah, People absolutely. Go back and get their preventative care, get their vaccinations. It's time. <laughs> yes, it's way past time. We want it. We want to see you. Please send them in. We understand. But trust me when I say you are probably safer in your doctor's office now than you are going to your grocery store. Absolutely. <laughs> Lots of things that we're doing to keep patients safe. That's Absolutely. for sure. I don't have this question on the list because I just saw the maternal mortality review report yes. come out. Mm-hmm. So do you want to talk a little bit about that and give us an update on the new numbers? So the maternal mortality review just came out for 2019. That's the data I'm going to go through right now. There were a total of 62 deaths in 2019 compared to 82 in 2018 and 78 in 2017. Pregnancy-related mortality ratio of 28.6 in 2019 compared to 27.2 in 2018. 74% of all deaths were determined to be preventable with 21% having a good chance of being prevented and 53% of them having some chance of being prevented. 37% of all deaths were due to pregnancy-related causes 53% 53% pregnancy-associated, and but not pregnancy-related deaths, and 10% were d- unable to be determined if they were pregnancy-related or not. And let me do a little aside there, because people always get confused about what pregnancy-associated and pregnancy-related is. Pregnancy-associated would be something like someone gets into a car accident, but they happen to be pregnant or they were pregnant in the past year. Pregnancy-related would be something like preeclampsia or... I don't know, like a blood clot or something like that that happens after pregnancy. So just so people understand what the difference between those things are. So other key points, and this was probably the one that was most shocking to me. One in three maternal deaths had a substance use disorder as a contributing factor to death, which is really kind of shocking. Acute overdose is a leading cause of pregnancy-associated but not related deaths, while coronary and cardiovascular conditions were the leading cause of pregnancy-related deaths. So obviously those numbers show that we still have a long way to go in Tennessee. Yeah, we still have a while to go, but we'll see what happens with the data from 2020. Do you think the expansion of maternal health care coverage for 12 months would be helpful in reducing those overdoses? Absolutely. I think a lot of women who lose coverage after eight weeks lose the services of drug and alcohol counseling, they lose mental health services, and being able to provide those, I'm certain, would help mitigate some of the maternal deaths that we've been seeing. I would agree with that for sure. What are some new things that you have that you're looking forward to coming out over the next year or so? Sure. So I already mentioned the WIC Shopper app, which should be coming out in the next couple of months. Hopefully I'll learn all the acronyms. That's actually the thing I'm most excited about learning is figuring out what all the acronyms for everything means. One thing I'm actually excited about is a hepatitis C screening. And it seems kind of silly to be excited about hepatitis C screening, but as I look at the data, so much of it is a good predictor for ACEs. It's a good predictor for maternal mortality. I mean, it's not necessarily causative, but definitely correlates a lot with a lot of the, the 
quality metrics that we're looking at. Other stuff that I'm looking at, and it's interesting because as much as as sick as everybody has been of Zoom calls and meetings, tele like telemeeting, it's actually been great because we've gotten some much better participation from people because people don't have to necessarily travel or they can do something, they can attend a meeting from their car or from their home. So I'm looking at I'm looking forward to taking advantage of more of the telework. I can't wait to see people again, but at the same time, I think there's some creative things that we can do with the telework and telehealth for patients. One thing that we are considering is increasing the amount of reproductive health services that are available through telemedicine, especially for family planning services. So I have a question. During COVID, WIC was allowed to enroll people without um, having to bring the baby to the office. Do you foresee that some of that would continue? I, I hope so, because it's been really popular. The parents love it. <laughs> the parents, and I can totally understand that because having to schlep all your kids to the WIC office is not fun. So I really hope it continues. And I understand maybe not to the extent that it was doing before, but even if it's a little bit of what we were doing before, it's been really, really popular and very well received. I would suck at that. <laughs> all right. Um, what questions have I not asked you that you would want us sure. to ask? Let me see. Oh, one of the things I'm looking forward to is trying to strengthen the connections with the community physicians. So I feel like we have so much focus and I've noticed that that's just a departmental thing in general. We have a lot of focus on within the department, within the division, and then the local health departments, and even maybe some of the safety net clinics, but they're still not the people who take care of the bulk of children in Tennessee. The bulk of children in Tennessee are being taken care of by regular physicians in the community. So I would love to strengthen our connections with that. And I'm trying to be creative with it and make it not be burdensome to physicians because they're already really busy as it is. So make it be something that's interactive, not burdensome, but something that they're going to, it's going to be useful for them and useful for us. Yeah. I think recognizing the amount of work that pediatricians are doing out in the community is really important. Dr. Amison, we appreciate your time today. Thank you for answering all of our questions, and we look forward to hearing from you as you develop new things. Thank you so much, and congratulations on your new job. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TIPQC. TIPQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.